0: I'm Gabriel Walker, the author of Antarctica, and uh, I've, I've been to Antarctica uh, many times doing research for my book and, and encountered some extraordinary people. But also, I've discovered that many of the people who go down there, the scientists, the support staff, the tourists, were all drawn by the heroic stories of the very first explorers who went there. And most of that happened just 100 years ago in, in 1912. And one of, the, one of the most extraordinary stories is uh, Australian... Geologist and explorer Douglas Mawson, and he was a he was a scientist first and foremost. He wanted to explore, but he also wanted to do science. And so uh, Scott, Captain Scott, invited him on his Great South Polar Trek, and uh, Douglas Mawson said no. And Scott even begged him and took him out for dinner and said, "Please come." And the reason was that Douglas Mawson would have been a fine person to have on anyone's team. He was very tall and strapping and strong. He was very brave. He was very clever. He was an extremely good scientist. And he was very, very dedicated, he knew what he wanted. But in this case, he didn't want to go to the South Pole. He thought that was a bit of a stunt. What he wanted to do was to find out what Antarctica had to tell him scientifically. So while Scott and Amundsen were off on their race to try and get to the South Pole, Douglas Mawson went to a different part of Antarctica. It was near the the South Geomagnetic Pole And he wanted to understand how compasses behave when they point towards the north or to the south or give you directions. And if you could go to the south geomagnetic pole, that was scientifically interesting, much more than going just to the the geographic south pole. That was just a a dot in the middle of a white expanse. He had nothing much to recommend it. So off he went on this trip. But what he didn't realise is that he was landing in one of the windiest places in the world the most extraordinary wind, the most amazing wind. When they were trying to set up their camp, pieces of, of, of wood were flying through the air and narrowly missing, hitting people on the heads. And you know, everything had to be nailed down and held down. And, and they kept thinking, well, the wind isn't gonna last that long, is it? Maybe it's just a, a little burst or maybe one day or two days or a week or a month. And they discovered that in fact, these extraordinary winds were going to go on for more or less ever. And that's because they were right on the coast, but in the interior of Antarctica the ice is piled up so high it's like an ice mountain. And the winds are actually born in the interior, they're cold air that starts spilling down the sides of this mountain. And by the time it reaches the coast where Douglas Mawson was, they hit it with the force of an ongoing constant hurricane. So whenever he and his men were trying to walk around the place, and I've actually, I've been to this place, I've tried it out, and it's an amazing feeling. It's like, imagine being on a motorbike going at 100 miles an hour without a helmet on, or imagine sticking your head out of an intercity train and feeling that wind. And that's what you get almost all the time. So they had this thing they called hurricane walking where you just lean over almost you know, 45 degrees and that's the way you have to walk. And then if, if some little gust of wind suddenly drops, you fall flat on your face and you have to kind of stand up again and try again. And uh, they decided that they were gonna have to live with this wind and deal with it, but they were determined still to go out and explore. And in the process of doing this, Douglas Mawson himself said he would lead the team that was going the farthest into the most difficult and most farthest uh, reaching part of the expeditions, because he really wanted to understand and explore what Antarctica had to give. So he and three of two of his colleagues, three of them together, they set off on this, this journey through the wind, through the cold, and uh, they had two dog sleds. And they knew that they might encounter crevasses, but they thought you know, the best thing to do would be to put most of the food and all the best dogs and the tent and everything that really mattered on the second sledge. Because if the first one went into a crevasse, they could use all the equipment on the second sledge to survive and to pull someone out if necessary, and that was what would make it safer. So they're going along there, there's, there's two, two dog sledges, two dog teams, the, the one at the front has not very much on it, the one at the back has most of the things that matter. Mawson was with one of his companions, Mertz, in the first of the sledges. And uh, they heard a slight whining sound and they thought maybe one of the dogs had, had been a bit misbehaving and so had received a touch of the whip or something like that, but they turned around and they saw absolutely nothing. There was no sledge, there were no dogs, and their companion Ninnis had gone, there was nothing. So they turned and they raced back to see what had happened and all they found was a big gaping hole. It turned out that the first sledge had actually gone over a crevasse and weakened the snow bridge that had, had hidden it. And the second sledge, the one with everything on it and the one with their companion, Ninnis, had broken through. And they looked down and all they could see, they could see one wounded dog, and that was a whimper that they'd heard, about 150 feet down, farther down than their longest rope. And apart from that, there was no sign of any of the equipment. And they shouted for hours, hoping, that, you know, against impossible hope, hoping that they'd, they'd hear something and be able to get their companion back. And then they began to realise that they were in real trouble because they'd gone as far as it was possible to go away from their camp, and almost all of their equipment, their food, their tent, and the best dogs, had all now gone. And it was going to be a race against time and a race against life to be able to get back. So they immediately they tried to figure out how could they patch together a tent from bits of material, how could they kind of uh, portion out their, their food, and they, they turned and they started back. What they had to do, the only food that they had, apart from the few bits of of supplies that they had on their their first uh, sledge, were the dogs. So gradually, one by one, as they managed to limp their way back, they started to kill and eat the dogs. And they ate every part of them they had to, the paws, all the parts that would normally be thrown away. And one of the particularly delicious parts, they said, one of the, the comforting parts of the food was the dog's liver. What they had no idea, was that the dog's livers were full of vitamin A. They didn't even know particularly that vitamin A existed. But it turns out that vitamin A if taken too much is a poison. So they started feeling terrible and the skin on their feet and their hands started sloughing off. And they began to feel dizzy and achy and appalling and there was a cold and there was not enough food and they didn't know if they were gonna make it home. And then eventually Mertz died in Walson's arms. And now Mawson was out there alone, without enough food, with almost no chance of getting home. And he spent a day by the body of his dead companion. He buried it, and then he set back off again. And this is already an indication of how extraordinary he was, what, what his resilience. But, you know, imagine what it must have been like out there alone. He had no way of calling for help. The only person that could save him was himself. So off he went, and he struggled his way through. Remember the wind, remember the cold, and then he fell into a crevasse. Crash! So he's hanging there in this crevasse on his harness. And these crevasses are the, the, the jagged cracks in the ice, and they can go down almost to infinity. And if you fall down in there and get trapped, that's it. It's the end. You just you just die. So he's hanging there, and somehow, somehow, he's weakened, he's he's got this terrible vitamin A poisoning, he's on his own, he hasn't had enough food, but he manages to, to climb up on his harness, and he just about gets up, just to where the snow bridge is, and he's just about to make it out, and suddenly, crash, down he falls again. Oh, and come on, this has got to be it. He's hanging there again, in his harness, almost too weak to do anything, and he thinks, well, you know what, this is the end. I did my best. And he's hanging there in the blue light of the crevasse, the ice all around him. And he's thinking, well now I'm gonna die a long, slow death as I freeze to death. Or well, maybe I could, I could just slip out of my harness and crash down into oblivion. And then as he's hanging there, he remembers a poem, a couple of lines from a poem. Just have one more try. It's dead easy to die. It's the keeping on living that's hard. And somehow, he manages to put one hand over another and heave and heave and heave. And he pulls himself back out of the crevasse. And he lies there on the snow for several hours, too weak to do anything. And then somehow manages to make himself a hot meal and pitch his makeshift tent and think about what to do next. And what he does is he takes a rope and he ties knots in it so that the next time he falls into a crevasse and the next time and the next hangs, he knows there's going to be many more times between here and home, he can climb back out. And that's what he did. He carried on his journey. He ate out his food. He was starving. And every time he fell into a crevasse, he climbed back out. And then he, became, he arrived to a place where he was within one day's reach of home. of the the camp where everyone else would be waiting for him. And the wind came back. And he was trapped in this one place in this one tent. He said the tent began to feel like a coffin around him. He was trapped for a week. And he knew that the ship would be leaving. And the ship would be leaving and this is his one chance to get back. And he was trapped. And after a week, the wind fell just enough for him to crawl back down to the camp. And when he got there, he saw the ship disappearing off onto the horizon. And five people had stayed behind. They didn't think they were gonna rescue him, they thought they'd just go and find his body. And they were all stuck there for the next winter. And that's the amazing story of Douglas Mawson's adventure. But I think what's more amazing about it is that it shows he he was incredibly resilient. But also, he and his companions did all that because they were there to do science. They wanted to find out about the world. They found the first meteorite ever found in Antarctica. They discovered all sorts of things about the way the magnetic field works inside the Earth, about the way the ice works, because they wanted to understand. And nowadays, Antarctica is strange because it's the only place on Earth that's actually dedicated to doing science. It's a continent the size of Europe, but it officially belongs to nobody. You can't do military activity there, you can't do commercial activity there, all you can do is do science and so all these different governments and countries have got these scientific bases there. And when the scientists are studying, they're finding out that the animals that survive in Antarctica have many of the same characteristics that the, uh, the early explorers had to learn. So another famous explorer, Ernest Shackleton, he's, he's very famous for this incredible adventure, a great boat journey where he managed to survive in the same resilient way that Douglas Mawson did but he's not quite so famous for something that I think is even more extraordinary. He actually had an attempt to go to the South Pole before Scott and before Amundsen, and he nearly made it. He and his team came within 100 miles of the pole, but it took them longer than expected, and they were running out of food, and they knew it was going to be very hard, and when they got within 100 miles, he had to make a decision. He knew they could make it to the pole. They would have the glory, but if they did that, they almost certainly would not make it home alive. And so he did one of the bravest things I think any heroic Antarctic explorer has ever done. He made the decision to turn back. Now that scientists are looking at the way that animals behave in Antarctica, they find that some key characteristics are the things that you need to be able to survive in such a harsh environment. And they are those key characteristics that the early explorers showed. Because if you study, for example, the penguins, they're incredibly resilient. They can go without food for amazingly long periods. They can fast for months if they have to. They can travel these long distances, just like um, Mawson did on his journey. He starved himself. He traveled for incredible distances, and the penguins can do that when they choose to. But they have another characteristic, which is that they have a trigger inside them that tells them this is enough. The game is now not worth the candle. It's time to turn back. And it's a hormonal trigger. Scientists have actually worked out exactly what it is that tells the penguins, but they know themselves, they know their own bodies say, time to go, time to eat, time to give up. And that combination of resilience and knowing when to quit is the quintessential Antarctic characteristic. We humans have learnt it and the animals have learnt it. In a place as hostile as that, it is the only way to live.